This episode, I'm joined once again by Brian Cantor to discuss the literature of Maurice Blanchot. I'd like to say a big thank you to all paying patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast and keep everything running, as Hermitics runs off patronage and donations alone, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Brian Counter, thanks once again for joining us on Hermitics podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me back again. Uh, so, after our last discussion on Gilles Deleuze's Proust and Signs, we uh, were emailing back and forth and we decided to record an episode on the, specifically on the literature uh, of Maurice Blanchot. And we're doing this in part because we both want to talk about uh, Blanchot's writing and literature, but also because, Brian, as I understand it, there is to be a periodical um, which people can sign up to receive for free from the publisher, which uh, I've now sort of done a lot of work with in reviewing their books and talking to Sam Kunkel first to knock. Uh, so yeah, just tell us a little bit of it about this periodical. Yeah. So I've been in touch with Michael Daly, who uh, runs the press and corresponded with him a bit. And, uh, I think what happened is I sent him uh, a PDF of some blonde show uh, and he contacted me and asked if I would be interested in, um, in sort of curating or editing this periodical. So it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's just, I think it'll be three essays. Uh, I'm writing something actually I'm writing, uh, it'll be maybe a strange essay about uh, Algernon Blackwood and blonde show. So there's a, it's more speculative, I guess, but I found some uh, parallels there. Uh, and then the other two essays will be by Jeff Fort, who I think teaches at uh, UC Davis in California. And then John McKean, who I believe is at Reading. Mm. Uh, McKean has translated the the, um, the Blanchot biography by Bidon. Mm. And Jeff Fort has written uh, a lot on Blanchot, but has an excellent book called The Imperative to Write, which is on Kafka, Beckett, and Blanchot. So that will be coming out, I think, in August. So anybody who's listening who wants a copy, go to the First to Knock website and there will be instructions for getting a copy there. It's totally free, uh, no digital at all. It's just print uh, and you'll get it in the mail for free if you uh, email Michael by, I think the deadline is mid-June. So say June 16th is the deadline for that. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll be sure to put those links in the description below, but that's... um... I guess to dive in with Blanchot, we both sort of agreed that a very short, I think it's about four pages, at least in the Station Hill Blanchot reader, uh, this essay is very short, but very key. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Gaze of Orpheus, which is related to the the myth of Orpheus descending to uh, the underworld to, in 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 a pact, to retrieve his... Uh, Eurydice and yes. the 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 pact or in a way I guess sort of a curse sort of a, a strange paradox uh, mm. at least it's read this way is that um, he's he's holding her arm her hand and he has to have a sort of strange faith in the pact and in something else because he's not allowed to look back to make sure she's with him, otherwise, I believe she will be cast back. And uh, I believe in the in the uh, in the classical version, he does look back and all goes to pot. Yes. But what is the Blanchot? What is Blanchot's reading and understanding of this? Right. So, so we were just discussing how Blanchot, uh, and as Kevin Hart said in his episode, he he uh, uh, Blanchot has a couple of big ideas that he keeps sort of recasting, and even if you look at his more straightforwardly critical writing about different authors and we can, yeah, we should maybe discuss this as well, but whoever he's writing about is almost um, a partner in him being able to articulate something about literature. Right. And I think that Orpheus, the tale of Orpheus and Eurydice is for Blanchot in a way, the impetus of literature for him, it describes um, not only the task, I guess, of the writer, like the, the impossible and also paradox is, like the key principle of Blanchot's method, right? Um, 
so it is this paradox that is crucial to um, what it is to write literature, but I think also maybe what it is to read literature or what, at least what the stakes are in literature. It's not simply, um, there is something akin to romanticism where there's this life or death engagement with art, but it's not simply passion understood in a straightforward way. It's actually this passion or this, you know, this love or lust or whatever's happening between, um, Orpheus and Eurydice where what happens, you know, he stopped, he can't hear her anymore. So he looks back and then, you know, she's condemned to the underworld and then he's ripped apart basically. So they both, it's, it's, it's a bad uh, outcome for both of them. And however, Blanchot says that that um, almost impatience is necessary for us to, you know, we, we need to contend with that impatience if we are to, you know, create literature. Um, I think what he says is that there's a, impatience must be the core of profound patience so you know what what is there when we're doing the task of creating art is something that is that threatens to destroy what we're creating mm -hmm. the threat is the threat though is sort of that honing in on it and and the, the limitation the description the belief that we there isn't a paradox that we somehow understand it though you know the looking back the the, the i guess the desire to understand it completely and assume that we know it or even know what's going on in that process. Yeah. I, I, well, yes, I think that's what it is. And I think also, you know, this is connected to a point that he makes elsewhere, which is that once, once the writer is done with the work and you could even say this about recording albums or, or making a painting, once the writer is done and kind of like releases it or births the work, then he can sort of no longer, uh, it becomes foreign, you know, it becomes foreign to the writer uh, in a certain way. And I think it has to do with this um, almost necessary forgetting of, of what, what was happening when the work was created. But I don't, I don't think that's entirely psychological for Blanchot. I don't think it's simply the common case with writers where they might state something like, you know, they're in a different place or with a different, group of friends or even with you know with a family and then not with a family at a certain point in their life this isn't uh biographically contextual or psychological that uh place or non-place that someone's within at the time or even duration that someone's within and isn't isn't to do with those kind of things that would that would those things themselves would be a clear limitation as to understanding the paradox itself Yes. And this is, um, now you're making me think this is a good point because just as this paradox is something beyond the psychological, you know, I think mm -hmm. it's, it's both like more fundamental, but also just simply be the psychological is only one thin layer really of what the writer's life is about. Um, so whether that's the psychological or the concrete, there's some other impossible task that is, uh, you know, solitary and, in excess of what is simply psychological. Um, so just, just as much as that's the case, I think also literature itself for Blanchot, and um, there's another essay that we should talk about here as well, but literature itself is not about plots or characters or something. You know, there's some other murmuring. He, always, he uses this, you know, the term like language speaking or language ceaselessly kind of murmuring at us or something, and that's what literature is. So whether there, you know, whether you're reading something like Beckett, where it's literally murmuring, uh, yeah. or if you're reading someone like Flaubert, who has this whole constructed, uh, more realistic uh, idea of plots and characters, in each case, there's something at stake which is not psychological or not realistic. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think that that's like doubled in the work of art itself for Blanchot. And to the extent that something is just realistic, that is just this imitation. I mean, that that for me personally is where um, is where writing loses me. Um, there's there's a you know I think it's a great book on writing for beginners, to be honest, uh, in a very practical sense. But actually, Stephen King's on writing uh, yes. is this great little introductory thing for this sort of practical layer of writing. But he would he would he would explain things like don't get caught up into in in don't get caught up too early in how to explain you know how a character gets into a room you know billy billy walked into the room but to the extent that writing is doing that 
that's where it loses me because I don't need to know that because it's that's what we that's what we do know. So that's where you're almost abusing what writing can do by simply using it as a purely imitative device, almost like a, a hyper realist painting. Is, is you're almost caught in this bind of why is this why is this needed at all? But of course there is for 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 Braun Show it seems that 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 the extent that writing is in a sense useful, the only usefulness of Broncho's writing is almost um transitions between different states where it's no longer useful and it's doing something more. But that was all very abstract, but they uh No, I, I, I agree with you. I think there's there's this tendency or um danger of writing almost trying to like short circuit itself, right? Like that simplicity, the simplicity is the is the hurdle i guess for forgetting what literature is about in the first place it's not just about i mean some people will say it's about telling stories but i think that blanchot doesn't doesn't really think that uh it's about and and maybe kevin said this in his episode or maybe i'm drawing this from somewhere else but it's about a certain phenomenology of literature which is also a phenomenology of experience um certainly not as rigorous or direct as one like husserl's but it is about describing uh, almost non-discursively through language this kind of state, right? Which, again, this is all a paradox, and this is what, what Blanchot gets at and what I think is also necessary. Um, the necessity of rereading him is to get at this state, uh, and so there is a circularity and in his writing and in this kind of thinking. So. There's a deep irony there that Husserl's own... What we might even try call a style is quite literally almost the inverse of Blanchot in the sense of trying to be so absolutely precise and limited on things as to not allow the reader any leeway as right. to uh, appropriation. Um, be interesting to see an essay between, like, comparing the two in a way. I mean, even though they're doing different things, maybe they are actually doing somewhat of the same thing. But there is, I mentioned it at the start. I don't, and I, I do really want to bring it in because I well I mentioned it before we started recording because I do think it will help us I don't know if have you read the Kukule problem I so, have. Cormac McCarthy's one single paper and it's a very mm. simple thesis or idea in that for him he's looking at the history to give the example looking at the history of scientists and mathematicians and breakthroughs and why it is that when there are all these different accounts of major scientific breakthroughs that it isn't done in the realm of reason or rationality they go to sleep they have a dream they wake up and they write something down that's given to them as a symbol or right. they're in some sort of flow state and something comes to them as a symbol or something just appears and his mm. argument is is that um this sort of subconscious layer, he doesn't really go towards the Freudian unconscious, in my opinion. I, I wouldn't say he does. He just go. He just sort of a bit more abstract than that. Calls it the unconscious. Is that this symbolic layer of language is far, far older than the language that me and you and are speaking right now. And so the 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 Kukule problem, you know, is the problem of why when these things happen are they given to us in this cryptic sense? Why does our brain or what we might consider this brain, how this whole thing works, you know, to say that is ridiculous. Why does it give us all of this data in a very cryptic sense and not simply say to us in language? Right. Here's, here's the answer to your problem. The, the theory would be is because language is extremely new and that whole apparatus hasn't caught up. But the point being is like, as McCarthy would say, is like, as I'm speaking to you right now and as you're speaking to me, I don't know what words I'm going to say. And yet somehow it all makes sense. Yeah. I don't know what I'm about to say to you, even though I kind of did know because there has to be something there which is saying it. But in the sense that I try become conscious or limit it, I think is sort of the same paradox that Blanchot is entering into as to what extent can things, what you know, what what ultimately what role is this weird vessel that I'm embody, embodying? playing in this weird act of creation where something just suddenly appears i've just written some words down and i couldn't actually tell you what i was going to write before i wrote them unless it's editing of course in which case you sit there and you do the annoying thing of bringing up a dictionary which is already feels very wrong um 
But I wanted to bring that in because it, I think Blanchot is dealing with, in a different way, he's dealing with this act of creation of like, what what is our role? What role does the writer play in this sort of flow that's coming from somewhere which I think he does explicitly deal with, this weird outside space, this weird the space where poetry comes from? Right. I mean, I think, yeah, a lot of things uh, come to mind, but... I mean, I think that it's it's worth sort of grasping on a little bit to this question of the unconscious or or of psychoanalysis. Um, mm-hmm. And there has been, you know, people have written about this. Joseph Kuzma has a book on Blanchot and psychoanalysis, which is uh, worth reading for sure. It has um, a more rigorous, you know, kind of engagement with Blanchot's own encounters with psychoanalysis, but also ultimately makes the point that he was pursuing if it is anything psychoanalytical, it's a psychoanal- psychoanalysis beyond psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Just like he'll say elsewhere that he was interested in a communism without communism or something, right? There's this always uh, contestation of limits of discourse or limits of even positions, right? Like the, the the limits of a certain position are always made very clear. So I think with, with Blanchot and, and this idea of the psychological or the psychoanalytic, it's only one dimension of the question and what this outside would be we can i think maybe one way to say it is that whatever this outside would be or whatever this reason is that maybe it is just in a dream or you know maybe it is only in some kind of nonsense that we come to an insight is not unlike um in a certain way the way that deleuze talks about thought as something that's prompted by these almost arbitrary and accidental encounters just with the world itself. Um, so, so sense in the sense and the meaning that we have to make out of the world is, is, is at its core is, is nonsense or something, right. Or at its mm. core, there's something just simply maybe material or even immaterial that, um, that, yeah, that prompts something in us that we, that maybe becomes a work of art or maybe it becomes mm. even, even a more logical or even more rational insight. Uh, but no, that, yeah, I, I'm, I am interested in this question specifically in terms of science because I've never, I haven't really mm-hmm. thought of. There's, there's something else just to bring in. I mean, we're going all over the map here, but it's, it, I think it's key because, well, it's key and contemporary. This, this current debate around AI and limitation. And and in relation to creativity, which I think is a very Blanchotian analysis that no one's really admitted to it yet, in the sense that people people critique AI because we we'll say, well, all it can really do in its create creative process is take twenty thousand images as an input, but it's only got that limitation of the twenty thousand as an output, which is very sort of anti-Blanchotian in a way. But I would say, well, okay, but most human beings are doing that doing that because to the extent that something a human being or whatever the apparatus is or whatever it is that can actually move outside of that notion of purely imitation into something more that is not us and i think maybe blanchot would admit to this right pretty much any human being can imitate here's twenty thousand pictures of a tree go paint a tree but it takes something that we can't see for all these strange creative breakthroughs where i don't know they suddenly paint the tree as a black cube right that's that's not so that's that hasn't been a conscious decision that's been Deleuze. You mentioned Deleuze. Deleuze would call it a kaisera, right? This like splitting of the spiral, which suddenly. But but he even he would say, look, this event of the kaisera. We, we don't really know what it is. Um, we don't know where it comes from. Um, but it continues things on, and then we sort of enter into that next phase. Everyone goes out oh, now. We've got that that like almost unconscious tool to play around with, but no one can. You can't consciously bring uh, the genius in. You can't consciously bring the outside in. Right. I mean, this is why the genius also, you mentioned especially that term, the genius. <laughs> we were just talking about Schopenhauer. I mean, I think the genius is a problem for, for all of these, even philosophers, you know, for Kant, genius is what what gives the rule to art, but it's not a rule, right? Like mm-hmm. there, there can't be a rule to art. And also if, if art is too academic, then we don't like it. So and for Schopenhauer, the genius, at least in my reading, is one for whom this kind of experience is a question, but that also has its own dangers because mm-hmm. the, the the genius, uh, especially when the stakes for Schopenhauer is that, you know, beautiful 
beauty is some kind of break from the suffering that we have in the world, then if you're the one who loves beauty, then that's, you know, it is a life and death question. And at the same time, it is paradoxical and it can't be explained or reduced to some kind of uh, schematism. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think partly, you know, part of part of this paradox that interests clearly me and Blanchot uh, and Deleuze is that, again, to, to, to touch back on Deleuze, it's the it's the accidental nature of these moments that makes them so forceful. Mm. If we could if we could do if we could just do art, uh, you know, and, and I mean, here's here's another interesting paradox, too. You know, we both love the recognitions by William Gaddis and thinking about somebody who is able to be an artist. Mm. at the same time as forging paintings how how can you do that as an artist how can you have moments of that experience when you're in principle copying somebody else's work to the smallest detail and yet i think it's i mean that's sort of what we're getting from the book right like he there's the scene where he refuses to paint a certain painting because he knew that the painter was sobbing as he was painting it so he Mm. says i can't do that i can't I don't know. Does that maybe that's a that's a different dimension of this question, but I think it's 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 so it, it shows well, right that it's not uh, simply psychological and it's not simply realistic. It's something that's exceeds us in this way. It exceed it we have to be pulled out of ourselves to to create in this way. Yeah, we, we have we have that. to be we have to be pulled out of ourselves, but I think actually what you focused on there is his uh, from from Gaddis and we're sort of tiptoeing around Blanchot, but perhaps the only that I don't mean to sound pretentious, but I wonder if that's the only way you can talk about him is by you know you don't want to because there's nothing there's no there's no pool that you can dive into like where you know there's not there's suddenly going to be some moment we go right let's talk about exact the exact Blanchotian thing now, um, yeah. but you mentioned the recognitions and the notion of um, not being able to paint forge a certain painting because the painter was crying that's a te- mm. that's a temporal distinction like it's almost something that's since since gone like all the all the um, the paradox which was in that moment, which culminated in that event, has since left. And even if you were pe- to to zoom into the microscopic level and paint it one to one, it is not. Is once again a Deleuzian thing. There is still the, there is still a difference on a right. completely another level. Um, yeah. And actually, in a, just to bring in something absolutely cheap um, to you know to move away from all this French pretentiousness. Okay, um, but actually, I'm reminded of uh, is it back, back to the Future Part Two where they go back to the future and he, you know, the famous scene where he does the Johnny Be Good riff and then at the end he says, "You're not ready for that yet," and perhaps that's why we can't approach because it's almost like he's he's ripped something from the future and put the paradox into a time where no one has the means to deal with it because we're like three Kaiseras ahead, um, right? And I wonder if. Something about Blanchot, which which something about Blanchot, which makes it extremely dif- difficult to approach, is that he's not placing himself within a certain break in time or a certain moment of genius. He is trying to talk about what that is as he's engaging with it, whilst self-referentially telling you. Look how limited. Look, look, look how much of a struggle it is to do this, and Absolutely. you're caught in that. And that's why it's almost like always ahead of itself. And to the point where we we could say we might. Oh, I understand, Blanchot. We're no longer ahead of ourselves, so the whole thing would be a failure. If we can ever, if we ever understand Blanchot, then he's failed. Is what I'd say. I, well, I yeah, I, I in my own experience, I think you know approaching understanding maybe like one or two essays out of the hundreds that he wrote is 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 something you know because mm-hmm. he does have, uh he does have this strange way of writing but i mean yeah what what you're making me think is that or or one thing to to remember is um he did write i mean he wrote he he wrote so many essentially book reviews, you know, like a lot mm. of his writings are, are basically or essays for a, a literature column, right, in a, in a publication. So he wasn't sure he has books, right? And I think maybe we can talk about this question of the book, because he certainly was concerned quite a bit with Mallarmé and Mallarmé's idea of having this like 
this unbound, literally unbound book uh, mm-hmm. that could be in order. Um, but when, so this means in principle that his, his writings on literature were occasional. And this mm-hmm. is something that maybe is more, people think more of Derrida, but I mean, it is blunt and they were friends. And obviously Derrida took a lot of, had a lot of, uh, um, insight from Blanchot, but I think this idea of, of investigating something in an, in an occasional way or, mm. or occasioned by something also does show this, this on the one hand shows that it, it is being prompted by something in the world, even if that thing is literature. So every time that he's returning to literature with a different author, whether he's writing about Flaubert or Balzac or Mallarmé or Rilke, He's he is looking at the same question really, but it's being it's an occasional view of this question. It's almost prismatic. So he has these same sort of um, maybe coordinates in mind, but they shift every time he returns to it. Mm. And I I think you know so there so in a way there can be no definitive Blanchot text or definitive thing he says about uh, about literature or about art. Um, the closest you can get to that is paradox, you know, or the closest you can get to that is impossibility. Cause that really, I think is what he was concerned with on a larger scale. But, um, but this doesn't seem futile for him. It would seem it, from, from oh. afar, it seems like a futile gesture to try to write about paradox whilst being in that, but whilst acknowledging that you're in, within that paradox itself. Mm. Why do you, why do you think he doesn't see that as a futile gesture to put pen to paper? I mean, there's there is, I guess, the easy answer that it like resists some some gesture of totality, right? Mm. But I think, you know, to put it in a more positive way, I think it it remains sensitive to the experience of literature itself. I think that which for him is is a very and I, I think I said this in the the Deleuze episode when I was introducing my Hermetics room, the he's concerned with life, you know, he is concerned with what it is to be alive and what how do we describe this feeling? Well, it's not I'm happy or I'm sad. It's actually it it engages uh, what he calls this kind of like ceaseless uh, and not play in like some deconstructive sense, but literally a ceaseless performance of language or a ceaseless kind of murmuring um, that can't really be stopped. I mean, this is I guess that's one place to maybe mention Beckett as well, because I think Beckett was after a similar a similar question. Um, Mm. But I, so yeah, it's, it's not futile because how else do we, how else do we make art? You know, we, we constantly return. um, And why, and why do we listen to music or why do we read things? We, we always return, especially rereading, re-listening. It's a return to something and it's, um, it engages a certain experience that I think is, is like very necessary to, to, keep in touch with it's interesting that when i was looking into the gaze of orpheus you know another famous person who's appropriated it sort of within this sphere is jacques lacan and Mm. it seems that actually there would be a there would be a sort of impasse between the two thinkers because this isn't like language is possibly a means whereas i think for lacan it would certainly be anything anything beyond it shouldn't be said in lang- language is the is quite totalizing i think for lacan in the the self appears really in language and then retreats when it's not speaking um whereas i think you know that there is more going on there for blanchot um and and language languages as you said with life living is not simply being unhappy and happy which is what made me think about this because those two those two des- descriptions of what it is to to um, to be are not being in itself, which is what Blanchot is heading more towards. You know, life as in living, as in ontology, not life as in some sort of existential Thomas Hardy. I don't know. You know, I sat on the bench and I was miserable. Blah blah blah. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, the the being of that situation itself in relation to how that can even be described. And once again, a further paradox, um, but nothing totalizing such as unhappiness or, and we see this in Thomas Thomas the Obscure, of course. Like Thomas the Obscure, being Blanchot's, I think I think I'm right in saying his first literary sort of major literary piece of writing, I think. And you know, it begins really. It seems to me it begins in the sense that the 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 
what we could call the protagonist um, caught in the sea and almost drowning and being thrashed about. It's like the first thing that happens in a blonde in the first of all Blanchot texts is almost the quintessential death of the self. It's like let's get that out of the way. Then you know, then we can then we can begin. That was something that should should be happening at the end of novels, right? The end of Moby Dick. Everyone everyone gets thrown into like the the abyss of truth. And it's this is like, right, okay, what what happens after that? You know, Blanchot starts at some weird end. Right. I mean, I think the the very possibility of asking what happens in a in a Blanchot text is um I mean but you're right to to pinpoint this because you know I've been rereading lately the uh, his 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 not a novel I suppose but a you know his story I guess uh, the one who was standing apart from me hmm. and you know quite literally nothing happens in it 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 is it is a very strange text to to read and to describe and uh, also funny in some parts I think I I sort of mentioned that to you like there is a kind of absurdity that comes about because in terms of what's actually being said on the page, it's this constant uh, question of being able to write and being able to speak. And at a certain point, the, 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 the way that this is expressed is so stubborn and so, um, so repetitive that it's almost like seeing somebody have a crisis about writing. And when you read it in this way, it's, it's almost laughable, you know, it's like, are you writing right now? It keeps asking this question, but are you writing? But are you writing? And there's no, there's never really any response either way, you know? So any possibility of action is sort of lost. But I think that, so, so on the one hand, while I think that like Blanchot writes in a way that's, you know, certainly you can say he was, if, if we're looking at any literary forebears, right, he's maybe, inspired by Kafka and Beckett and, and some of these other writers who mm -hmm. have this very singular style. I think what he points out in his critical writing as well is that even like we were sort of already touching on, even when you have a text where there is this more legible uh, plot or characters, that's still for Blanchot, the way he's looking at it, that's still only one dimension of what mm. literature is. So you can say, I mean, so he, he has um, in his essay, The Narrative Voice, which is in uh, The Infinite Conversation, it's like it's a 10 page essay. And I've, 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 you know, I return to it every once in a while, just like this kind of circular. Every once in a while, I need to reread this essay to, to try to have some new thought about it. And he... I would say I would recommend it to anybody who's interested in Blanchot because I think what it does is that it seems to set up this hierarchy and then also like takes that hierarchy down in a really interesting way that once you set it up and then take it away, you begin to see where he's coming from with literature. And what I mean by hierarchy is uh, he, he talks about the type of literature, which is like Flaubert, which you have the author who almost tries to remain distant from the characters and sort of allows the characters to play out their lives. And the author is simply describing and doesn't want to intervene. Right. So he mm -hmm. says, this is, this is the classical idea of aesthetic disinterest where we need to be viewing from afar, almost as if it's like a play on a stage and we don't, we don't have any contact, but we're simply like almost just receiving the text. And then he contrasts this with Kafka. He says it in Kafka, something else happens, something he says that there's a strange element that begins to infect the text that doesn't allow us any distance anymore. Uh, and what he calls that is the neutral or the narrative voice. He, say, he says that we hear this speaking in literature, and we oftentimes hear it as madness. So I think there's an interesting uh, dimension there, too. We might mistake this strange voice as madness. I mean, you're, you've been reading Thomas Bernhard, maybe... You know, there's something there too, right? There's this, maybe it's not only madness, maybe it's bitterness or something, but there is langu language when, especially when it's repetitive in this way. So Beckett too, um, what it's driving at is something, I think something beyond language, but I do mm -hmm. also think, I think that it, so while this seems like a hierarchy, like, oh, Flaubert is now the naive. We don't need that anymore. That's this one kind of literature. And actually what I'm interested in is Kafka and all these weird writers who, 
who who allow the text to speak in this way. I mean, I think Blanchot's ultimate point is that those writers are exemplary for showing us that this is true of all literature. Mm-hmm. So you go back to Flaubert and you can read Flaubert and see language itself speaking still, even though there even though there's a plot and there are characters mm-hmm. and there is this attempt by the author to have this kind of distanced thing. So language itself does this. And I mean, so beyond the intentions of the authors. So maybe some authors are more consciously trying to do this. And I think that Blanchot certainly did that with his own, because he does write, you know, he has texts that read like Kafka or Beckett, or, you know, he does have these texts where it's difficult to see what's going on, where it's, it's hard to imagine any of these characters as people or mm-hmm. it's hard to, you can't visualize it mm-hmm. but it is um but i think his point was actually and where he can be really instructive for anybody who likes any kind of literature is that this is always happening and when we realize that we unlock this new this experience of literature that maybe wasn't possible before well it's um, yeah i mean what you said about um not being able to visualize i mean that that I think is actually key. I mean, you, there is this um, there's that sort of famous test that people can do, and though I don't think it's entirely limited to this level, the, the test of visualizing a red apple, and what level of sort of you know can you hold the the some image of bright red apple in your mind how long can you hold it what does it look like and there's sort of these five levels and for me I, you know I, I really struggle with these I, I i for me things appear in my mind very much as ideas like i know what an apple is but there isn't a red apple in my mind i'm not it's not one-to-one or something like that and the the reason i would mention this is because perhaps it's perhaps it is a very clear distinction between certain types of readers in that a lot of genre fiction fantasy and sci-fi i find extremely boring Possibly because I've never really thought about this until now, but possibly because I can't think of a great big spaceship in my mind flying past the moon. You know, it doesn't interest me because it's not it's not there. It's not this sort of cool thing happening in my mind. Those are just ideas to me. And so to that extent, it's almost like reading a car manual because it's like this and this and this and this happened. Okay, well, you're just explaining causation to me. What's the point? What's the you're, you're it's almost an abuse of language in the sense you've limited it to such a degree that we're basically you've There's brought no it right back down to the you've brought it right back around to the real world. So why did right. we do, why did we undertake this at all? Whereas with Blanchot, he's utilizing language in the sense that well, there is no visualization. You're entering into that almost the non the non Apple idea of whatever they might be ideas that that lead you somewhere lead you somewhere more um right yeah well i think yeah i think like so so maybe part of it so i think it is also certainly part of certain readers because i think i have the same the same issue of i mean it's also maybe a different way of saying you know the ability to visualize something or not but Mm. For me to think, oftentimes, I have to just talk to myself. So for me, a lot of times articulating an idea, I can't just sit down and think and have this idea. I mean, sometimes I have to pace around and, and try to like actually allow the idea to come out through speech. And mm-hmm. I wonder if there's some connection there where with, you know, with with literature that's fantastical or epic or something like that, although I think Blanchot's point, which I was just mentioning, is that that literature still does have this strange type of uh neutral neutrality to it mm. it is harder i guess at first glance to see what we can do with it as a reader right or see not see what we can do with it but when there's no fracture in it or when there's no negative space or when there's no room i guess for us to almost uh work with it and i don't mean write about it i mean uh mm. almost the question of what did you want Right, like, what do you want from a book? Yeah, you pick right. up you pick up certain books, and it's sort of transparent that you want to just go be a saint. You want to have a bit of fun. You want heroes and villains, and but why? Do, you know, I guess Blanche, Blanchotian literature questions all of your presumptions of why you read at all, and what, what you know, what what was it you wanted from this? And I think of so, sort of like a writer, like one of my absolute favorites, Daniel Carms, who would often. He would finish stories because he'd just write, I can't be bothered to finish this. And completely 
usurp all presumptions of the reader and just say and then it, or or like he'd get so bored with the story and make it clear he'd say and then they all fell out of the window and died because he just couldn't be bothered to finish it um and i i think blanchot is doing exactly the same thing with this sort of negation of negation of presumptions regarding what language is meant to be you know this isn't right this isn't this you haven't given me anything um, but in the sense that you haven't been given anything then i don't know there's somewhere to work something to, there's something to work with but um we're both i think we're both like i did with kevin hart struggling to define it because once it's defined it's gone once it's defined right. it's not gone it's uninteresting because it's imitation right. once again well, because it's the it's the it's the motion of literature, mm. you know. There, I think with Blanchot, there's this kind of it has to be um, interactive is not the right word. That's certainly not what I mean, and I don't mean literally doing something with it again, like not like writing about it or not performing it. But when we read, we are doing something, and when it, you know, and I, I don't again, I don't think that he would say that there's some hierarchy, you know, between science fiction or whatever you know or epic tales and more abstract things but i do think that those 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 maybe more difficult or uh what what at the what at in one instance would would seem to make us uh expend a lot more effort so something like beckett right like mm -hmm. we need to read this and it takes all this effort from us right it takes all this we need to it's it's difficult right mm -hmm. something that's difficult at the same time as it seems to require this effort it puts us in a passive position mm -hmm. where we're not maybe we're not able to eagerly meet the text in the way that uh we're forced to engage with it. You know, we're not just sitting down happily to receive our tale of, you know, spaceships and things like that. We're actually, but we, we can't put it down. I mean, this is the experience I have reading Blonde show. I don't always know uh, what's happening or why I'm reading it, but I still, I certainly can't uh, stop reading it. You know, there's, there's this kind of, he, 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 I guess allows something to speak that we don't, you know, normally here hmm. uh, in literature. And this, again, is something that is always there in literature. It's just we don't uh, we don't think about it that way. There's a quote that I had um, jotted down. Each picture, each piece of music presents us with the organ we need to receive it. Hmm. And once again, entering into that paradox, much like Orpheus looking back, the development of that organ is a passive organ. Something else is almost doing the work for you, and you look back and you go, "I wonder what that thing actually is." Well, well done. You you you've ruined the you've ruined the process. There's a, it's almost like um, a uh, like an a atheistic faith, and I say atheistic because you know Blanchot would not allow the god type faith, but there's like a there's like a faith in a, a faith in an allowance of whatever this thing will be, right to to appear to to do what it needs to do and i think i I've, I've just speaking personally i've often found that really what makes the writing which i've been happier with is actually less of my uh, like very strangely allowing less of myself to get involved because sometimes there is a sentence in your mind and it's almost too honest or too clear or something and you think no i need to tweak that a bit and and it, it, it's sort of a strange numenal honesty which just needs to be allowed people are often told to write write what they know but then people interject into that and ruin it right i mean taught speaking about the 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 quote about the organ you know the mm. organ to receive uh that organ we we you know thinking about we speaking already about occasional writing that organ is an occasional organ as well you know mm. if it's created by the thing that we're that we're engaging with in that very moment then that organ simply comes into being uh spontaneously as it were in that in that same moment and i wonder i mean there's a certain i think i mean this is a i guess a different question but i i always wonder about um because Nietzsche, you know, famously critiqued Kant uh, and Kant's idea of disinterestedness. He says that Kant allows the spectator, or he he introduces the spectator into the question of the beautiful. And for Nietzsche, this is a bad thing. Like mm. he, you know, and then he he quickly then says, "What about uh, 
you know, he mentions artists, you know, what about the experience of the artist? You know, he's concerned with this and he thinks that the experience of the, what he calls the spectator can never rival that of the artist because for the artist, um, there's this life or death question of needing to create the work uh, and being invested, you know, precisely interested in the work, right? Like we can't be disinterested in something if we understand disinterest in that way, if it's a life or death situation, Mm. you know? Like the artist needs to create and that for Nietzsche is like yeah. kind of this is the basis on which he's able to critique uh, Kant. But I mean, I wonder and this is, a, I guess, a larger question that I'm preoccupied with. Uh, you know, is there is there a disinterest? Is it can there be a life or death disinterest or, you know, for Blanchot, maybe this would be like some kind of neutral state of creation or maybe this is what the the narrative voice or what what's at play in language kind of points us to where at bottom, it doesn't matter if we're reading Flaubert or Kafka, Mm. we still are so, you know, so interested to the point where we can't not be interested. And yet that seems to mirror the, uh, I guess the spontaneity of what would be Kantian disinterest, because we can't simply will ourselves to be disinterested. Do you know what I mean? I, you know, like something in the yeah. For me, this just draws to this distinction between useful literature and those who have nothing to say, and the sort of the a very deep irony that, in the sense that a writer has something to say, and it's useful somewhere along the line in some space that we can't really name they've already said it mm-hmm. it's already done why are we bothering it's like a, once again back to sort of like almost like a, a, a manual for a car okay well you've said it even if i think i would even go so far to say even if in your own mind it's done that the thing has been said somewhere somewhere in space but when you don't have anything to say i mean this is the whole Bicketian approach right Right. Why? What happens when you write and have nothing to say? And there's there's something extremely. Um, it, it leads you somewhere which isn't isn't imitation. It's not of your own. It's a different type of duration. I think it leads you straight into the heart of paradox. And right. paradox is going to work you out, um, not the other way, I guess. Well, and also, I mean, importantly, you know that. Beckettian thing, and I think also what Blanchot was interested in, is so singular to precisely the one who is doing it. So even if it is this touching on the outside, it's still, you know, we read Beckett and it's unmistakably Beckett, Mm. you know, like it unmistakably makes an instrument of him to do, to give voice to this. Uh, Even if the, you know, what it is, what his task is, is not to say something, but just to say or to allow to be said, you know, mm. to like clear the space for this, this, again, murmuring of language, I think is the probably the best way to put it. Um, but it's still so identifiably Beckett. And I think this is maybe like part of the paradox. And I wonder if there's some, I guess, maybe my question that I'm trying to articulate is if there's some relation between that on the on the writer's side and this organ in us on the, you know, this, the spectator or whoever, this is why I brought up Nietzsche. Is there something like that in that gets engaged when we have this experience of literature? You know, is there some necessity of, uh, I mean, there are many reasons or many ways to answer the question of why we would read, but is there something akin to uh, whether or not we're creative in other aspects in our lives? Is there something akin to the creative drive there? Uh, that, that has the sort of stakes, you know, that might be there for the artist who can't be disinterested in the normal, you know, way. Well, well I think about I think about this um, a lot, to be honest, especially at the moment with reading a lot of Bernhard. The question yeah. of why do I wish to spend my spare time reading something which is only really bolstering my misery? <laughs> why does that interest me so much? Why don't I go read something happy? And cheer myself right, up, right. and it's not—it's nothing to do with those emotions. Once again, it's—it's. Uh, right. it's, I would go so far as to say it's ontological. Like an, it's an ontological agreement of someone working out the same paradox you found yourself within. I think, and anything yeah. which is anything which isn't that is um, tyrannical. It's a travesty. It's an absolute travesty. I think it's almost like if you step into someone else's 
paradox someone else, reading something which you don't which if i read something which is optimistic it would almost be like trying to duct tape someone else's organ you know onto me and try process it in that way and it's just going to fail it's going to be an absolute failure because it's not right. a paradox that i've ever recognized as a paradox um and yeah, I mean, there's something more, but but that question does sort of plague me in a way. Of oh, I've just ordered another miserable book. Why have <laughs> Why have I done this? No, but I, I mean, it's see, even even in your example, I think like it's precisely uh, you're saying it's it's not about those emotions, but you're choosing the example of the most like sour, you know, <laughs> like most miserable, uh, monotonous, repetitive, and I think that there's I, I'm you know. I, I would do the same thing. So I think that there's something <laughs> very true about this where on the one hand, it's not even about what story is being told, you know, mm. it's about an intensification of this paradox. Maybe that, that, you know, we, that uh, again, maybe this is the way to, to sort of connect the reader and the writer in some way, right? Like the, the, the writer has to do something because for whatever reason, they're not able to, exist otherwise in the world you know mm. and i think that sounds silly or whatever but i think that is very true i mean if you think about if you think about um what it is to to do it it's just a bunch of time spent alone you know with with no guarantee of anything and 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 yet all of these writers had this as if it were their like task or mission uh but i wonder then like so in the contemporary moment where it's so kind of useless to read and pointless and there's no you know why do we continue to do it you know it's it's not the same as making art but it is uh it's and it's not for knowledge we're not like learning anything you know no. but we are we're, we're we're indirectly i guess learning something about experience or well it's a strange a strange distinction between nothing to say and usefulness because once something's useful there's a clear function there's almost a functionality as to why someone is creating it. i mean you think of a sort of a a kitsch crappy landscape painting you could say well it's useful art because that's going to go up in some doctor's office and just be basically the equivalent of artistic filler um mm. which should all be burnt and destroyed but in the sense that you're sitting down when you have nothing to say i mean to go right to go back to him, Cormac McCarthy has a, a quote from his early days that um, to write a novel, you must be insane. And he, I, I, I think he is relating that to that notion of what in the world compels human beings to sit down and put themselves through this, enter into this horrible paradox, expend an absolute ton of energy, uh, ex almost expend themselves over and in the process cause a lot of misery and whatever sort of existential tumult and sort of mess up the the order for no payoff almost negative payoff um yeah. there's not you know if you want to make money you're not going to be a writer don't right. you wouldn't make that decision so and without without even the guarantee of escaping from that paradox too you, I think you're going to you're bolstering it I mean, you're, you're going, you're Orpheus going, I mean, this is, we get back to Orpheus. This is exactly what Blanchot mm -hmm. was talking about. There's, there's the possibility that you're going to be ripped apart at the end of it, you know? I mean, and, and that intensifying the paradox maybe then is like this threat of looking back and, and maybe losing the thing that, that you're trying to work on in the first place. Yeah. So. But you can't, you, you, you almost don't make the decision that, you, you right. do inherently care about it enough that you that something compels you. You have to do it. Because I've mm -hmm. thought about this. You sit down and I think, you know what, I could quite happily never write again. And it's not me that's really writing. It's something that's playing me. Because no no sane person would bother to sit down and do all this. It, you know, it's, there's nothing functional or useful about it. Um, and yet something compels me to do it in the same sense that something compels me to eat. Um, right. And it's if in the, and in the sense that I don't do it, it's just gonna it's gonna nag and nag and grow almost like some sort of strange. I don't know. I don't well, know. and I I think like it's also important because you could extend, and I I do think that you can extend these same comments about any sort of art, mm. but specifically with literature, where what you're creating is made solely out of language. Mm yet 
when you have the paradox of trying to touch on something in a way that isn't just, again, I'm happy, I'm sad. It's not mimetic. It's not even necessarily discursive at a certain point. What's being, what, I mean, just like Blanchot himself, I guess, what's being talked about is only being circled around. Um, Mm. And whether that involves literal repetition or an indirectness of approach. Um, I mean, reading, reading, reading the one who was standing apart from me, I realized I was taking notes on it. And there is one out of the entire thing. There's one proper name and it's Van Gogh. It mentions Van Gogh once. There's nothing else to tie it to the real world. There's no, there's I, there's me, there's writing, there's a window. He keeps mentioning a glass of water that he keeps it's, I mean, it's a very strange, almost like am, amnesia dream of a mm-hmm. book because he keeps, it's unclear if he, if this, or, I mean, it's not even a he again, I, I guess this is Blanchot's point is that it's just literature or language itself is, is the one that's saying I, um, mm. but it's unclear even what we could call events in the book. The, the, the narrative voice is constantly saying basically that I don't know if that happened though, that I, was I dreaming if that happened or did I, did I actually go get a glass of water from the kitchen? I don't remember. I'm in a different room now, you know? Mm. And so like the, for the very material of the, of the form of the work of art to be not only, you know, it's not stone and it's not taking stone that we use to build, you know, buildings and turning it into a sculpture instead something that's not useful but it's the thing that we use to communicate to each other and it's engaging it in this totally alien way you know Mm. even if you are sitting down and writing a realistic novel or a realistic story you're still doing something that's 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 totally almost unbound from the world that's why i mentioned it being alien and i think that's why for me i brought in mccarthy's paper the kukule problem because i think in the Mm -hmm. sense that you I would actually almost go so far as to say that, that in the sense that the mind, what we were talking about earlier with the, the red apple thing, mm-hmm. shapes and words, what's useful in the world is mostly shapes and things that slop together yeah. and it's like that's done. I can see its sense data. But in the sense that there's language, language when it becomes useful is more alien because language as it's language is always trying to convey a symbol or a feeling or an experience which is inherently not of it because those experiences and feelings are not language so language right. is always alien and in the sense of what Blanchot is I think trying to do to an extent and probably this is about as far as I could go in the sense of saying I understand Blanchot or what what, what it, it is allowing language to at least try return to the paradox of its own situation yes i think yeah i think that's i think no i i think that is right though um i have i actually it's funny i have a quote exactly in mind uh that maybe ties some of this up or maybe just intensifies the paradox a little bit more i'm not sure but he writes in um in another uh really excellent essay that uh if anybody wants to figure out in general what Blanchot thinks about literature. This is a good place to uh, start. It's called Literature and the Right to Death. He says, um, literature is that experience through which the consciousness discovers its being in its inability to lose consciousness in the movement whereby as it disappears, as it tears itself away from the meticulousness of an eye, it is recreated beyond unconsciousness as an impersonal spontaneity the desperate eagerness of a haggard knowledge which knows nothing, which no one knows, and which ignorance always discovers behind itself as its own shadow changed into a gaze. So quite a dense uh, quotation, but I do think this is, I mean, I think, you know, we, we keep using the term paradox, but I also think that there there is a, it's, it is hard, uh, especially if you have a hard time you know, having images in your head, but there is a way in which for Blanchot, I think experience and literature and life are almost these uh, mirrors of each other or way, you know, you pass through the paradox and, you know, maybe you don't resolve the paradox, but you're sort of on the other side of it always. Mm. And I think that this, you know, this question of 
of of exhaustion of you know a ha- as he says a haggard knowledge which knows nothing you know all we're doing with with um with literature is just moving on to the other side of this paradox and trying to see it from the other side maybe mm-hmm. uh because in the, in this essay too it's 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 a fascinating essay because he he basically uses Hegel to talk about literature, but instead of Hegel's aesthetics, he's using the phenomenology. So he's talking about how how literature kind of has this absolute ability to do anything, but it's also cut off totally from from the world. So it has this uselessness to it. So it can do anything, but it's useless. Uh, and and yet, like the you know, for the writer, these are high stakes endeavors. So uh, I think this is what he's always wondering about. Is there anything you'd like to add about Blanchard's literature? I don't think so. I think mm. I think we went all over the place, but I it think is. we kind of touched on some of the, the real problems, I guess. Well, the whole thing's, the whole thing's a problem. It's good, yeah. But it's a good problem. But I think, um, yeah, literature and the right to death and the gaze of Orpheus, theoretically speaking, are two good entry points. And then... I would probably still agree with Kevin Hart in terms of like, if you want just a quick sort of, I think about 35 pages, but the madness of the day in terms of the actual mm-hmm. literature is, is just such a great entry. It's unlike anything else I've ever read. But we have this um, periodical from the first, uh, from first to not publishers, uh, which is free. Uh, you need to sign up before June 16th. When yes, this I think video that's, goes live, that's... you'll probably have about three weeks. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I believe that's, yeah, that's the date that Michael uh, gave me. So just, yeah, go to the first Tanakh website and send an email. Everyone should do it. I mean, they're really, he's doing a great press and even the periodicals are beautiful. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing how it turns out. Mm-hmm. Well, all those links to be in the description below. Um, but yeah, Brian Counter, once again, it's been a great discussion. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thank you.